0: Our, our task this morning is to cons- begin considering the first paragraph of chapter 2 in our confession on the doctrine of God. And we spent some time last week, in a sense, setting the table for this chapter and looking at the, the background, both theologically and historically, what was the background to these statements? And then, and then, what was the theological methodology and approach? You know, if you were going to sit down and with a blank sheet of paper and write a confession of faith and write a, a confession about the doctrine of God, you know, where would you start? What methodology would you use? And and thankfully, uh, the those who wrote these words or edited these words in the 17th century were not starting with a blank sheet of paper. They were intentionally, self-consciously building upon all the work that had been done at that point for more than 1,500 years of church history. And so today, we're going to look at just the first couple of phrases in chapter 2, paragraph 1. And and today, the subject is is the identity of God. And and we can take this for granted, but we, we ought not to do so. We want to look at the identity of God. So let's pray and ask our Sovereign Lord to make himself known to us, uh, both through his word and and more clearly through these these statements from our confession that we might, as we saw last week, have the goal of, of a greater devotion, a greater worship, a greater doxology of our triune God. So let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for your faithfulness to us, your word endures forever because you have always existed. You are the God who is. And we pray that this would be a growing comfort to our souls. This would be a, a greater and growing source of confidence as we even as we stare into the face of, of a world that has seems to have lost its ever loving mind. I pray for a bold, humble, simple confidence in our God who is a God who is true, a God who is living, a God who is our God. We thank you in the name of your Son, and by the power of your Spirit, we ask for your help. Amen. So I'm going to read again the, the first paragraph of chapter 2. But our, our focus uh, today will be on just those first three phrases. Um, the Lord our God... Is but one living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. That will be our focus today. I'm going to continue to read because it it, it begins to develop then the attributes of God. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him and with all, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. If you will turn with me in Isaiah chapter 44, turn with you to Isaiah chapter 44, I'm going to read verses 6 through 8, and then I'll skip down and read verse 21. We're going to consider two main headings today as we, as we think about these first three phrases in paragraph one in our confession. And, and the first is, our God is living and true. And take notice of the, the plural pronoun that is used in the very first sentence here in paragraph one, the Lord our God. It's significant, the way this is phrased. So the first heading is, our God is is living and true. And the second heading will consider the self-existence and self-knowledge of God. So let's read in Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declare it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Then down to verse 21, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, I formed you, you are my servant, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Now the flow of of this chapter is, is God declaring and reminding to his people that he has chosen them. According to his own sovereign goodwill and pleasure, God has chosen this people. And then in the middle part of chapter 44, there is a, a description of idolatry using vivid language about the futility and, and really the silliness, the stupidity of idolatry. And, and then the Lord comes back in verse 21 and says, Remember these things, O Jacob. And he's using, even, even referring to them in this way, this is covenantal language. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. Because we know that it is God who called Abraham, and then he renewed that promise with Isaac, not, and then the, not with Ishmael. And then of the sons of Isaac, it was Jacob and not Esau. So when we see, when you're reading through the, the prophets or you're reading through the Psalms and you see language like uh, uh, our title given to God, like the God of Jacob, notice that's covenant language. It, it, it is language that conveys an ownership, a language that conveys an intimate relationship, a covenantal relationship. Relationship. So the first thing we want to consider as we think about our confession of faith, the Lord our God, is but one only living and true God. This this statement about God being our God is important. He is not everyone's God. In, in a personal sense, he, he, is not, he is not covenantally in relationship with every man. He is covenantally in relationship with his appointed people, with his chosen people. Now he is God of everyone in the sense that he has made everyone. He's made every man and woman and child. But he is not covenantally in a relationship with every man, woman, and child. He sovereignly rules and governs everything in this world, everything in this creation. In heaven on earth, in heaven and on earth from the least to the greatest, he rules and governs all things those who are in the spiritual realm, those who are in the physically earthly realm, all things are subject to and under the sovereign rule of God, and yet he is, it only can be said of him he is our God to those to whom he has made himself known covenantally. That's significant. Now, what should be the outcome of that? As we saw last week, the outcome ought to be doxology. It ought to be worship. As we, as we meditate and think about this, here is the infinite, indescribable, incomprehensible God. And yet he's made himself known to me. He's made himself known to you. And because of the finished work of Christ, you and I can say, if we are in Christ, he is our God. We belong to him. And in a sense, he belongs to us by way of his own covenant. And so here we have an attempt in our confession to summarize the very being and nature of the one who has made us, but also, in particular, the one who loves and saves his people. That's our description. We are not sim- we're not trying to describe a God who is different and remote and inaccessible. He is certainly incomprehensible. He is certainly beyond our ability to comprehend But that does not mean that he is far away from us. He is our God. We do not worship a God who is far. We do not worship a God who will not draw near to his people. We worship the only living God, the only true God. You may notice, if you have a copy of the Confession of Faith that has the footnotes and the scripture references in it, you'll notice at this point there are two references, Deuteronomy 6 and 1 Corinthians 8. At Deuteronomy 6 this was 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 known became known as the Hebrew Shema this was this was the first of the the Jewish confessions of faith hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might notice two things that are that are simultaneously true and necessarily one follows the other Hero Israel, the Lord our God. You see, you see the term again. It, there's a sense of ownership, a sense of relationship. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Because of who God is, and because covenantally he's made himself known to his people, what is the necessary response? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is the only reasonable conclusion to this infinite holy God making himself known covenantally. The only only reasonable response to God being uh, available to us in the sense of he is our God is to devote ourselves fully uh, to loving him, to serving him, to worshiping him. See, that's exactly the conclusion that Paul gives to us in the book of Romans after laying out for us in the first 11 chapters, all of the glories of the gospel from eternity past up to the present. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or it's your reasonable or rational service. This is the logical response. This is the reasonable response to God making himself known as our God. The other footnote there in that first phrase in our confession, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God. The o- other footnote is in 1 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 4, we read this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many Gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist.
1: See, there is only one living and a true God. And the Scriptures affirm, we
0: can, as you read through the Psalms, you will see this. Paul acknowledges it here. There are so-called gods. And in the, in the ESV, I think it's right that the editors have chosen to use quotes for gods or lords because they're not gods at all. There are certainly things that people bow down and worship. There, there are things around this creation that, to whom people give their allegiance Things that, frankly, we give our allegiance to. That, in in a sense, rule us and have become our gods. The things of our flesh can become our gods. The lusts of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, the desires of our hearts, and and the inordinate uh, affections for even good things of this earth, and yet, can't we make those idols? We can make them little g, air quote, gods. And the scriptures tell us very plainly, there are many of those such things, and yet for us, who's, who is us in Paul's language? Those who are in covenant relationship with him. The ones who can say he is our God. This is, Jesus is our Savior. He says for, for those For thus there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. God is the true and living God. Now we see that in the second phrase, we're introduced to two concepts about God, his self-existence and his self-knowledge. That are important for us to, to begin to wrap our minds around what does it mean that God is self existent and that God possesses a self knowledge? Notice back in, in, in the first phrase, the Lord our God is. The, the simple sentence,
1: God is, is quite profound. It's quite profound. It is, in fact,
0: a, a deep and weighty statement. The language in our confession, starting after that first semicolon, whose subsistence? Whose subsistence? What, what does that mean? What is that word communicating? Remember last week, you may recall that uh, Dr. Renahan, I heard in a podcast, giving, I, I think, a, a, a wise warning or caution about the use of some of the, the modern paraphrases of our confession of faith, not because they're unhelpful or not because we ought to avoid them, but because when we're seeking to do serious study of them, sometimes they drop some of the technical language that's important. And here is one of those technical words that we, we might gloss over, but it's a helpful one for us to, to grapple with. One of the theological dictionaries of the time defined it this way, subsistence is the property by which an entity is capable of existing per se, meaning in itself, or in its own right. It focuses on the aspect of the independence of the existence of what there is. Now if we meditate upon this, that God is or that God subsists. There is nothing that we have ever encountered, nothing that we can encounter in our created world, or even according to our created intellectual faculties, our our created brains. There's there's no point of reference for us. There's there's nothing that we will encounter in all of our lives except God himself,
1: who is. Who is who simply exists. There was never a time when God was not.
0: So when we speak about eternity from the human standpoint, we think about ourselves as being immortal souls, and that is true, but we are only immortal. We are only eternal from a place in time going forward. We are not eternal in a sense going backwards. And so even when we think about eternity, we tend to think in in linear ways, before, present, and after, but God just is. God does not exist in a a chronological way, so when the scriptures say things like, uh, to the Lord, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day, it's not giving us a mathematical formula, it's not saying that God's sense of time is different than ours, it's saying that for God there is no time. There is, there is no linear relationship of before and present and after. God just is. In Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 12, listen to what God says about himself. Hear me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called, I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Now, we're, we're grasping at the, human, the, the limits of human language, aren't we? And not only human language, but human cognition, the ability of humans to think about these things. We're, we're really pressing the limits of that. In fact, we're, we're well beyond the limits of it. God says, I am he, I am the first, and I'm also the last. And again, he's not speaking about chronology. He's not saying that I was, I was there in the beginning and I will be there at the end. Because for God, there is no beginning, there is no end. He is. His subsistence is in and of himself. And of course, famously, In Exodus chapter 3, you you, you remember this scene, Moses comes up on the the burning bush, and God calls him and says, I want you to go and confront Pharaoh, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And and Moses began with the excuse-making immediately. Now, we ought not to think that we would have done better, but Moses says to God, okay, behold, I'm about to come to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, and, and you can almost you can almost hear the tone of Moses' voice here. He's almost speaking hypothetically. Okay, God, so here's what I'm going to go to the people of Israel, and this is what I'm going to say to them. Moses has not yet settled in his mind that this is actually what's going to happen. He's just presenting this back to God. Okay, let me see if I'm following your, your, your argument here, God. Behold, I'm about to come to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has
1: sent me to you. And they will say to me, what is his name? Now, we're not asking, what do we call this God? That's not really the question. So, when we,
0: when we hear the question, what is his name, Moses is not asking God, you know, sh- what, what words should I use to describe you? What, what, what name should I articulate on my lips that they will hear in their ears so that they can identify who this is? No. What Moses is asking is something far more significant.
1: Who is this God? And God said to Moses, I am who I am.
0: And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This this is a perfect parallel to the statement God is. And this is what God is saying about himself. I mean, to use really bad grammar, it's to say, God is saying, I is. God is. I, I simply exist. This is, because this is not the God of a certain place. This is not the God of a certain time. Because in, in, to the Egyptian mind, and the Hebrews had, had taken up this kind of thinking, the gods of Egypt were only the gods of Egypt. And in a sense, they were confined to that geographical area and to that That time. And God is not going to be confined in those ways. God says, I am. Tell them, I am who I am, he said. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name from generation to generation. Now, what is God saying? He's saying, first of all, tell them I am. Tell them that the everlasting one, tell them that the self-existent, always-existent one is the one who sent you. But also remind them of this. That same God who just is, is the one who in space and time made himself known to your fathers I am also the God of Abraham. I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am covenantally their God and your God. I am the infinite, indescribable, holy one, but I am also the God of Israel.
1: And so see, when the editors of our Confession of Faith are putting these things in print,
0: They're drawing from these very clear, incomprehensible certainly, but still very clear statements about who God is from the scriptures. The Lord our God. They recognize that that God has, has, of his own free will and his own free grace, has chosen, according to the foundation of his eternal love, to make himself known and put
1: his name on a particular people. And to allow Those people to use his name. Saints, what a privilege that is for us to say we belong to
0: God, that he is our God. He is not the God of all the nations in the same way. He is sovereign ruler of all the nations, but he is not their God in a relational sense. So we can say, first of all, that God is, is relational to us as his people. Which will be important when we, next week when we begin to start about looking at his attributes. Uh, there are many who, who will say things, for example, like his impassibility, the fact that God does not have passions, God does not have emotions as we have. And they will say, well, then God is cold and heartless and unfeeling, and unwilling to draw near to his people. Well, nothing can be further from the truth. We have to grasp, the, before we begin to look at God's attributes, we have to first wrestle with, who is he? He is the eternal, self-existent
1: one. But he's also the one who's drawn near to his people.
2: Turn, if you will, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. Jeremiah 10,
0: verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You were great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The destruction of idols, or the instruction of idols, is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of... Of the craftsman and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and their everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure
1: his indignation. So Yahweh is the true God. So
0: this this statement, God is, 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 is pregnant with meaning. One, he, he exists apart from his creation. If he had never made anything at all, he still would be Lord and King. He, he exists as the Eternal One. Here in the language of Jeremiah, verse 7, Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? So this idea that that we have to invite Jesus into our heart in order for him to be Lord, is folly. It's a silly notion. God is. He is the everlasting one. He is the exalted one. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. He is the king of the nations, whether they acknowledge him or not. And at the same time, he is our God. According to his mercies, he has set his name upon us and allowed us to identify with his name. Dr. Renahan makes this statement. He says, God is. It's a simple but profound statement. He is life itself. He alone is infinite and perfect, comprehending himself fully and thoroughly. He has a perfect knowledge of himself and can alone and uniquely know what it means to be God. This is beyond human comprehension, a truth to be received by faith. It's an important point to make. Because God is, and because we're going to see, he is incomprehensible. Look at the next statement. Whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. No man... Not the most gifted or intelligent or longest living a theologian in all of history could comprehend the nature or the mind or the essence of God. But just because we can't comprehend him doesn't mean we cannot accurately state and articulate what he has said about himself. We accept these things by faith. God is. I don't fully understand that, and and neither can you. And yet we receive it by faith. God is our God. How is it that the perfect, holy, matchless, eternal
1: God has chosen to set his eyes upon you? What is man that you are mindful of him? It's a profound question, isn't it? Why? Why?
0: even in a state of innocency, even when God created Adam and Eve in in innocency. They're not rebelled against him, and yet why why would God have
1: a relationship with them? It's a mystery, isn't it? It's an expression of God's eternal love. But how
0: much more, after Adam and Eve shook their fists at their
1: God willfully, knowingly, intentionally sinned against him, rebelled against his
0: word, rebelled against his law, his rule, his sovereignty, why then
1: would God continue to be mindful of me for anything other than annihilation and destruction?
0: You walk out in your backyard, I mentioned last week, no one, no one walks out in their backyard and thinks, you know, I have a duty, I have an obligation to make myself known to the ant."
1: or to the worm, or to the cockroach. And in fact, what happens if we
0: have an encounter with an ant? It bites us. And what do we do? Squish it. Just like that. And we're done. What is, God, what is man that you are mindful of? him? Here is the eternal God. And, and, and the gap between us and an ant is infinitely smaller we like to think we're a long way from the ant. But in comparison to the gap between us
1: and God, it's no comparison, is it? God's knowledge is both infinite to, and to
0: us incomprehensible. In Isaiah chapter 40, if you want to turn to there, Isaiah chapter 40, this is an important passage, and Paul quotes it twice in the New Testament. Quotes or, or paraphrases it twice in the New Testament. Uh, first in Romans 11, and then also in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2.
1: In Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 13, let back up to verse 12. Who has measured the
0: waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Of course, you know the answer. No one. No one did, no one could. And so Paul, in verse, First, or in 1 Corinthians 2 and in Romans 11, he's making the argument, no one knows the mind of God except the Spirit of God. No man can comprehend God. So as we see in there, in our, our confession of faith, let's kind of put these things together and, and have a, a greater meaning for those, those first three phrases. These are introductory phrases, but they're, they're weighty. They're, they're carrying a lot of cargo. The Lord our God is. The Lord our God is, but one only living
1: and true God. Saints, your God is a living God. Your God is the only true God. And and
0: yet we know, don't we? Uh, I think it was John Calvin that said, the human heart is a veritable idol factory. We were able just to mass produce those things, just crank them out one after the other, aren't we? And we can get really creative. And we come back to this statement again and again and again. Our God, the one who has covenantally made himself known to us, the one who is our creator, the one who is by, by, by his essential being, by his essence, is king of all the nations. And yet he's made himself known covenantally, relationally, through the person and work of his own son, and and then and, and Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. And Jesus shows to us that our God relates covenantally and particularly to his people. He is our God. And he is a living God. He is a true God. But we also see in the next phrases, whose subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection, whose essence is, cannot be comprehended by any
1: but himself. Our God is self-existent. He is not dependent
0: upon his creatures. He's not dependent upon his creation in any way, shape, or form. Uh, We'll see this fleshed out more fully in paragraph 2. If you'll recall, one of the, the interpretive principles with our confession of faith is ordinarily the first paragraph lays out a doctrine that's going to be developed by further steps in the paragraphs that follow within a chapter. And we see that here too. We see the statement that that whose essence God, whose essence cannot be comprehended but any, but himself, he is infinite being and perfection. He is not dependent upon anything. And we're going to see that in chapter or in paragraph two fleshed out more fully the, the theologians know this is the aseity of God, the self-existence of God, this, the self-dependence of God. He is not dependent upon his creatures or his creation. You can either add to God or take away from God in any way.
1: But our Lord, the Lord our God, is. And he possesses a self-knowledge
0: that he has communicated to us in part, but not in full. One, because he doesn't owe that to us, to communicate his, his essence to us in full. But secondly, even if he did, we could not comprehend it. There are, there are no words, there is no language. There is not the capacity in us, in our, according to our humanity, to comprehend the nature of our God. So next week, we begin to look at the specific attributes of God, but often in a study of theology proper, there's kind of a jumping into describing God and his various attributes, and those, those are important. We, we think about him as a, as a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts, passions, um, immortal, uh, immense, immutable, eternal, and, and we distinguish between communicable attributes, those attributes that God shares with humanity, and those incommunicable Attributes, those, those attributes which are in no way common to men. But, before we begin to, evaluate, to look at those descriptors of God, it's vitally important that we meditate upon his essence. Who is this God? Before we begin to describe him according to specific attributes, we need to meditate upon his isness, his self Knowledge, his self-existence, his trueness, his uniqueness as the only God.
1: we'll stop there. Uh, are there questions or thoughts about those uh, those wonderful but incomprehensible, in many ways indescribable
2: truths Matthew. i hmm mm-hmm.
1: You know, Paul Paul deals with that, and if we read the rest of that chapter in 1
0: Corinthians 8, he deals with that. He says, you know, some don't have this knowledge, and their
2: consciences are, uh, let's see here. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge.
0: Because he has just said, although there may be so-called gods in verse 5, in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, and again he's using those quotes. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat and no better off if we do, or if we do not eat and no better off if we do. We take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul introduces similar categories in in his epistle to the Roman church where there are those whose consciences are weak, meaning they are convinced that there still is a power in this thing. And, And whether it's in a whether it's an alcoholic beverage or whether it's a particular, you know, movie or particular, you know, there's there's those that have set, have taught over the years that well, if you if you even watch this certain thing, you're opening yourself up to demonic influence. Well, that's that's really a pagan way of thinking. Um, that that there is power in things. That that is essential to the practice of paganism, is that there is power, there's authority in in a in a in an object, and that's precisely what Isaiah and others have said that's a lie. There isn't. Um, whether it's gold or silver or digital pixels or whatever, there's no power in that thing. There's power in the one and true God. And Paul says there's some who, who haven't quite grasped that yet, and according to the weakness of their consciences, they say we, we should not even touch, in, in the example he gives, someone who's, who's eating food. So let's say in the ancient world, there would be meat markets. And, and often what was sold in the meat market had actually been offered up to an idol, been sacrificed to some lower G lowercase g god earlier that week. And but there wasn't a need to, you know, eat all of that food, so it was sold in a marketplace. And there were some Christians who were saying, you know, I used to go down to that temple. I know what goes on there. I've been part of those rituals. I want nothing to do with it because if I eat that. I am, I am participating in an offer to an idol. And Paul says, some have understood that it's, it's just food, it's just meat, and that there is, there's, no, there's no act of worship simply by consuming the, the, the created thing. But for the sake of those whose consciences are weak, we don't want to provoke them. We don't want to harm their consciences. We want to love them with Christian charity and respect that. So he goes on in, in Romans, he says, you know, if you're, if you're going to somebody's house and they offer you food that's, and you know, it came from the, the meat market that's on the backside of the temple, and you know this was food offered to idols, but that your host doesn't make a big deal out of it. It's just, it's just, it's just a ribeye. It's just a piece of chicken. And he didn't drink it to the glory of God. But if your host says, I got this because... It was offered to an idol, and I'm participating in that. He said, but don't eat it. For the sake of their own conscience and yours, don't participate in that thing. Not because the thing itself has any power whatsoever, but because the conscience and the orientation of the heart of the individual is is very important.
2: Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Mhm. 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 Yeah.
1: You know, I think it requires a great deal of wisdom. There was a
0: those of you familiar with Rosaria Butterfield, um, former uh, activist in, in the lesbian community, uh, former architect of gender theory and so forth, she wrote a statement, I think in the early part of April of this year, wrote a statement of, of, of public repentance, and specifically for the sin of using someone's preferred pronouns rather than acknowledging the objective reality of their biological sex. And she said, I thought, and she's, she's now a, a faithful, godly Christian woman, married to a reformed pastor, and she said, I thought I was being kind. I thought I was showing Christian charity. She said, but public sin requires public repentance, and I repent, and will you join me in repenting? And, and if you've read any of, of Rosaria's writings, you know she's, she's quite articulate and explaining uh, theologically why this is important. And I think it's related to your question, because the, the ideology that we're being confronted with, this, this whole trans ideology and, and, and uh, human sexuality, the perversions, it is religious. It's, it's unavoidable, it's ines- unescapable that the ideas, the dogma, the doctrine associated with that movement is religious. It is idolatry. And it is, it is, and it is a direct affront to God as creator and Lord. When, when a man shakes his fist at God and says, I will not be a man as you have sovereignly created me to be. When a woman shakes her fist at God and says, I will not be female as you have sovereignly created me to be. That ha- cannot be anything other than a religious statement. And so for us to participate in that idolatry by saying, what is your preferred, preferred pronoun? You were born male. You were not assigned male at birth. Your, your maleness was observed at birth. It was not assigned. Your femaleness was, not obs- was observed at birth. It was not assigned. And so even the manipulation of language is, is subtle, but it's pernicious. It's, it's wicked. And so that's one example, I think, of, of saying, no, we will not, we cannot as Christians say, I'm going to participate in that idolatry because it is an idol. It, it's an idol wor- worse than being made with uh, wood or stone or gold or silver. It's being made with human flesh. And and the wickedness cannot be overstated. And so we, we have to be willing to look at, that's just one example, but look at idols in our culture and say, I can't participate in that. I won't even participate in that verbally. I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't do violence to God's created design and God's lordship as creator to participate in not just
2: folly but rank idolatry does that make sense Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. That's That's exactly right.
0: It's a good example. Uh, We had the occasion to go to a a, a funeral. It was a Catholic funeral, and they, of course, had the Mass, and we... Would not, could not
1: uh, participate in that idolatry. But we're ignorant
2: of what we care about in that. Sometimes it is a fine line between navigating that, but of how you can demonstrate love for people. Right. Right.
0: You know, things like, and we, we were. You know, Jim, Walker and I were talking about this sub- several weeks ago, um, someone potentially attending the wedding, a same-sex wedding. And, and to say, as a believer, I couldn't do that. I couldn't even attend. You know, to attend a funeral, you know, again, maybe, maybe we, have to, we have to exercise great wisdom and discernment. Uh, is it wrong to, to, to attend a funeral, a Catholic funeral? According to my conscience, it was not wrong, but I wasn't going to participate in the Mass. I wasn't going to participate in that particular point of idolatry. But I was there for friends, to love them and, and, and comfort them and encourage them. Um, but also was, was loving and supporting and, and comforting friends who understood the truth and also did not participate in the idolatry. So I wasn't affirming them and their behavior also. Uh, so we, we, have to, we have to use great care, great wisdom, and coming back to these, these central truths of who God is. If we lose sight of that, that that's, that's our anchor, that's our point of reference, that's the fixed point of reference for us to avoid idolatry, it's coming back to who God is, and, and to recognize the weakness of our flesh to chase after all kinds of shiny trinkets in our culture. And, and sometimes even out of a mistaken sense of love for someone, uh, we, we can then participate with their own, their idolatry
1: as well, Didi? Yeah. yeah, well, for the first five years of
0: our existence as a church, we met in an SDA, Seventh-day Adventist building. The building was full of graven images. And, 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 and twice while we were there, they had a, like a six- or eight-week prophecy conference, and they brought in these, these massive, this is a gymnasium, but they went from floor to ceiling. And we had to bring in, uh, one of our deacons went and bought black king-sized bedsheets, and, and every Sunday morning had to get in early, up on a ladder, and cover all these things up. Before worship, because it was it was blasphemous, um, and so even though this was a professing Christian church, we weren't meeting at the Masonic temple. We were, we, I mean, felt like it some days, but we were we were meeting at at a, at a a professing Christian church, and yet there were idols all over the place that we physically covered up
2: before we before we worshipped. Yeah. You're a witness, mm-hmm.
1: right? Exactly. You're not a participant. You're just a spectator. But a wedding, you're not a. You're not merely a spectator. You're a, an eyewitness. It's a good distinction.
2: Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. That may be all
0: we agree, disagree on, but we, we agree there. So we've got we've to wrap it up. We've got five minutes before we're, we're doing a call to worship. Father, you are, you are great and awesome and beyond our, our, our comprehension. But I pray, uh, Father, that the limits of our humanity in terms of our ability to comprehend your nature would, would in no way hinder us or discourage us from worshiping you according to what you've revealed yourself, what you've revealed about yourself. Holy Spirit, will you give us spiritual eyes to see our triune God as we ought to? Will you cause us, there is, far, there, there is, there is more given to us already by which we may worship you than we, than we could ever comprehend. And even those things which we do comprehend are more than enough to give you worship, honor, glory, and praise. And we pray that you will help us to do exactly that as we prepare ourselves to worship you in a few moments. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.